0: This is Lara Harris-Hills and I'm here today with Tonnalyn Rutherford to talk about the church in India. Tonnalyn Ford Rutherford is an adjunct professor of religion at BYU. She earned a bachelor's degree in history, a master's degree in humanities, and her PhD in the history of religion at Claremont Graduate University. Her dissertation on the LDS Church in India was recently selected by the Mormon History Association for the Best Dissertation Award.
1: Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture.
0: Congratulations. Thank you, and thank you for having me. What attracted you to India, of all places? That's the
1: first question that people ask me. As a young ambassador in my undergraduate years at Brigham Young University, I got to travel to India with that group. And in preparation for our month-long trip to India, Nepal, and Sri Lanka, we studied the religions of India with Lanny Bridge, who was also a great historian of the church in India. So in that first 1850s mission to India, the, the church sent missionaries there. I had just an amazing experience there. It's life-changing to go to India. grabs hold of you, and it never lets go. And so when I had my opportunity to choose a dissertation topic, India was definitely foremost in my mind. I also got to spend a day with Mother Teresa. So that has colored my whole experience with watching her minister in India and the importance of her work there has been inspirational. So,
0: how amazing was yeah, that?
1: Yeah, it was really life changing.
0: There's not a lot of books in the library on the LDS Church in India. <laughs> <laughs> How did you conduct your research,
1: Tana So that was uh, definitely, a, it was a lot of field work. So I did oral history and ethnography, and I would go for a month at a time and interview as many Latter-day Saints as I could or people who were affiliated with the church, missionaries, mission presidents, and then when I was back home, I would continue to watch people on Facebook and stay in touch, interview people of the diaspora here. Ended up with over 175 oral history interviews as an archive to draw from. And then putting the church in its context, looking at the history of Christian mission there to begin with, uh, that was basically my work. I tried to be a member of the Hyderabad stake. I would put myself in Hyderabad and just kind of try to go to seminary classes and institute and church and get a feel for what it meant to be a member of the church in India.
0: To put this in perspective,
1: about how many members of the church are there in India now? Records say there's 12,000 members in India. And there's 1.2 billion people in India. So it just kind of gives you an idea of the growth there that is awaiting.
0: You lay two frameworks for your discussion. First, you talk about how the LDS Church is a global rather than a world religion, which I had never thought about before. Can you define the
1: difference between the two? Sure. The question that I started with was... What does Mormonism look like in the birthplace of some of the world's great religions? Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, all grow out of India. They're considered world religions that we will study in a world religions course, right? They've been around a long time. They've diversified. They've globalized. They've spread. When people look at Mormonism, they want to ask, is Mormonism a world religion? Rodney Stark, for instance, said that... Mormonism was the first major faith to appear on the earth since the prophet Muhammad wrote out of the desert. And Jan Ships called it a new religious tradition. And so there's this question that's going back and forth is it a world religion? Well, I found that that's a problematic label or way to look at it. A more effective way is to look at how something is globalizing. Right. So is this appealing? Is this like McDonald's? (laughs) Right? They're going and, and appealing to the tastes and the flavors of this new there's no hamburgers at McDonald's in India, right? It's just chicken or cheese. It's the same thing with the church. Is it globalizing? Is it adapting to the tastes and to the interests of people in India? So that was my central question: was is this religion globalizing in the world? by a case study of the first indigenized unit, a stake, in India.
0: Why is that distinction important for understanding what is going on in India?
1: There's a scholar that I really appreciate who spoke to the Mormon History Association, Jehu Hansels, and he suggested that when a movement becomes globalized, it requires attentiveness to complex questions pertaining to cultural adaptation the translatability of a core message and vision, diversity of forms, shaping of identity out of its original context. In other words, is Mormonism looking like an Indian tradition? Is there an Indian identity growing out of this? He also says that a globalized tradition will act reciprocally, so that the margins, so to speak, will actually affect the center. Those divisions between the center and the margins will be less important, and there will be influence from the margins. Many scholars have questioned whether or not Mormonism is a globalized religion, a, a world religion, whether it's even doing anything, or is it just the evils of correlation is making it just an American church that we just export. My argument is that in India, we're seeing a globalization and a hybrid identity that's growing, that speaks to, I think, globalization. The next question is whether there's reciprocal influence from the margins, from people in India that influence the center of the church itself.
0: You introduce a tent metaphor. Can you share that and tell us how it helps us know how the church is changing as its growth in the global south increases?
1: Sure. Central to my argument is that w- one of the key terms is indigenization when scholars of world Christianity look at the question of enculturation, right? Is this indigenizing, in other words, are local people owning and running and making the decisions on the ground. My argument is that a stake is a form of indigenization. So Mormons are indigenizing. They do it by building stakes. When there's a stake on the ground, there's no longer a mission structure. It is completely run by those who are local, right? do still connect back to the center, just like a tent. One of my favorite quotes was from an Indian religious scholar who said that religions are like tents. They're not sealed off. There's a fluidity in their boundaries. And it's inherent to religious units that they yield themselves to be dismantled, relocated, and reassembled and that religions are never finished products, they're constantly handing themselves over to their adherents, which just really resonates with what the LDS Church is doing as they build stakes, is really handing the tradition over, they're dismantling and reassembling on the ground there, and handing this over to their adherents. The stake itself becomes a new center, right, from which growth comes, and also— is reciprocating back to that center pole, right, in keeping the tent up and sustaining the viability of the entire tent. You mentioned the
0: 1852 mission to India. That really didn't get many people involved in the LDS church. What were the true beginnings of the church in India?
1: The 1850s mission ended in 1857. It was officially closed, And there were attempts here and there. But what finally happened was there were organic, miraculous, just upbringings of the church. So there was a person in Delhi who found an anti-Mormon book that drew him into writing to the church. There was a man in the South, who Paul Tiratrivados. He was in Coimbatore. And he found a pamphlet, the Joseph Smith story, inside of a used book and read that and was converted and wrote to the church there was a man in Bangalore who was sent the enzyme by a gentleman in Utah and then finally where i look about where the first stake was finally started and by the way all of these initial upstarts happen between 1955 and 1978. In the 70s in Samoa, there was a couple, Edwin and Elsie Damaraju, who were converted to the church, and they come from Hyderabad, India. They wrote to church headquarters asking President Spencer W. Kimball to send missionaries there, and they were greeted with a mission call. <laughs> and they did so to their own family. There were 18 members of that family who were baptized together in 1978, which formed the the first branch that will eventually grow in 2012 to the first stake there. No missionaries were involved really initially in those first uh, starts of the LDS Church in India.
0: The church's response to missionaries in India was actually measured, wasn't it? You yes. include a great quote from... President Hinckley, who was Elder Hinckley at the time, right after he visited India, what was his response?
1: He came home and just said, these people are amazing, which which they are. In Coimbatore, this was Paul Tiraturvedos, who had very similar to the growth that we see in Africa. He had taught. He had Sunday schools that were organized, several different potential branches, of people who hadn't been baptized yet. And President Hinckley says, we don't know what to do. These people are very Pentecostal in their ways. It's very different from what we are. We are overwhelmed with the issue of poverty here. We're just not sure how to go ahead. We really need help from the Lord to know how to handle this. And it was several years. It was eight years before Tiros Herbidos was finally baptized. So there was a lot of growth that happened prior to that.
0: And what year was that?
1: So. Um he was finally baptized in 1965.
0: What factors have affected church growth in India? We've mentioned a couple of them. The right. Poverty, they didn't have a common background. Right. And also immediately what pops into your head is there's not a lot of similarity between Christianity and Indian
1: religions. Right. Right. What else? Definitely the drastic religious pluralism, radical religious pluralism, there is so different for the church's mission work. India gained its independence, and at that point, they're breaking from the British Empire, and there's a tremendous resistance to Western influence, right? The churches that were on the ground. Christian churches became indigenized. So British missionaries, those from from Western countries, went home, and there were tremendous impulses against Christian mission, against any kind of efforts to convert. So there's laws that are prohibiting conversion, prohibiting missionaries. So it just becomes impossible almost for Christian churches to proselytize. One of the very famous Christian leaders said, we need friends, but we can do this ourselves, go home, essentially. So the church is facing that from the start, this resistance to getting visas, to getting permission to even proselytize, in addition to being recognized initially.
0: Wasn't it Mahatma Gandhi that tied
1: Christianity to colonialism? Absolutely, yes. And he said, we don't need to be converted. We have our own tradition. Conversion goes against the concept of dharma and a person's path, their duty, the caste system, the whole idea of you are born and your previous life has determined where you have been born and what religion you have been born into, and you just don't change that. That's not the Indian way. So there's a dramatic impulse against conversion that continues today and has increased since the 1990s with growing Hindu nationalism, which has interesting parallels to our own experience here in the States with a, a growing Christian nationalism or the religious right that says we, we're a Christian nation, let's not invite anyone else in, let's have our own little uh, Christian It's almost nation. the reverse. It is, exactly, exactly.
0: India starts off as a mission, first couples are sent there, and then it transitions to a stake. What
1: happened in this transition period? It's got an interesting history because those initial missionaries, there were very few that were sent as couple missionaries to, to make friends for the church, not to proselytize, to help and baptize those like Turvados or Michael Anthony who had converted to the church but weren't baptized yet, and to begin ministering to those who were already members of the church there without formal proselytization. It was easier to get a visa for a member of a commonwealth nation. So you have a lot of missionaries that come from Great Britain, from Australia particularly, who end up being some of those first missionaries. The growth was very much through these couple missionaries until the 1980s, when the first indigenous missionaries, so there were finally members of the church in India who could serve and who were allowed to proselytize in their own mission, in their own nation. And so the work grows under the direction of the Singapore mission or the international mission at different times. Finally, in 1993, there is a mission that's organized, and the first mission president was a convert from Sikhism, actually. Guteran Singh Gill, who was the first mission president, had joined the church and become a professor at BYU and went back to form that first mission in 1993. So, and at that point, it grows with a really small proportion of foreign missionaries most of the missionaries, at least half usually fifty percent, sometimes it was a hundred percent because of visa problems, were members from within India, so they've really relied on indigenous mission service, which has made a huge difference in the growth
0: you maintain that the Hyderabad stake is a case study for showing how global congregations can infuse a local identity toward their worship. In what ways is that apparent in
1: Hyderabad? When I would attend meetings or enter the church, I would look at what's on the walls, what are people wearing, what are they singing, how are they speaking, how are they teaching, those kind of superficial visual things that I could see. And I found some interesting ways that Latter-day Saints are navigating their Indian identity. There's definitely, in terms of clothing, for instance, it was fascinating to see women who definitely are wearing Indian clothing. There's no sense that there's a need to wear Western clothing. Although those who have been in the church for a while or who are a little bit more Westernized will wear Western wear But there's very much that continuing Indian identity in terms of clothing for women. Men, on the other hand, there has been a growing need to identify priesthood attire, they call it. So a white shirt, tie, slacks is priesthood attire. I talked to a mission president who hated that term and tried to get rid of it. But really the indigenous members themselves felt like this was their identity and this was how they needed to look as men. So there's... Those who have been in the church longer identify with that Western wear. So these are more superficial things like the bindi dot on a woman. There's a little bit of question within the church. Those who come from Christian backgrounds see the bindi dot as something that is definitely religious. Those who come from a Hindu background, perhaps this is just like fingernail polish. This is something you can continue to wear, and it's part of your Indian identity. There's a negotiation there that I see members really using their own agency to decide what works for them and what is culture versus what is gospel, what is really crucial to a Mormon identity. Music, I think, is interesting, too. I just was in in noticing how English is the language that's used in India right now. So all the missions are in India, aside from a few of the branches in Coimbatore, which were started by... Brother are in English, not in the native language. So the music is, of course, in English, and the tonality is English. And I just want to put a plug in for the, the new hymn book that was just announced. This is an opportunity for members all over the world to infuse Mormon music with their own identity, hopefully. So a little bit, or maybe there'll be some Indian tonalities in hymnity.
0: I found it interesting that there were some things about the meeting house that were definitely Mormon generic. Oh, so,
1: sure. You want sure. to talk
0: about some of those?
1: The way the church works and builds, the church has very much a Western appearance on the outside. There were several people who were converted to the church, who were drawn to the church because of this beautiful building that's bigger and more beautiful than than many of the things that they, they had there. When I went inside, it was interesting to see what was on the walls was very different. So you had correlated artwork, right? This is what was chosen. But I didn't see the types of things that I would see on a bulletin board in Draper, Utah, where I live. The priorities there were not to decorate necessarily, but rather to just use the building and teach, and I didn't see as much of that going on.
0: I think you even mentioned they had the floral couch that the church has bought 100,000 of.
1: Sure. I mean, it's the same fabrics, the same artwork, right? So you feel like you're at home until maybe you go to the bathroom, and the, the bathrooms are different, right? There's a different toilet. There's a different situation there. So it's interesting. You
0: mentioned that the Indians have some different terminology having to do with church than maybe we might have in the States. Mm-hmm. First of all, priesthood attire, right. which is a white shirt and pants and tie. Mm-hmm. We have that. We might not use that word, but right. we sure consider it priesthood attire.
1: Sure. sure, we do. Yeah.
0: How do they define
1: gospel culture? So that was one of my real questions. Dallin H. Oaks actually officiated in organizing that first state in India, and spoke to the members about gospel culture and and navigating that question as to what is culture that remains and what is culture that is let go of. That's been criticized definitely by scholars who've looked at, is there a gospel culture? Is this a helpful terminology, right? I just would ask people, what do you think about culture and how... Um, how has that been really married to your Indian culture, right? How have you navigated that? I had some interesting responses from people who particularly came from marriages that were inter-caste marriages. Caste is still very much an issue when it comes to marriage in particular. Caste endogamy, being married within your own caste, is very important to many people. Several couples would talk about, we weren't going to go with his culture. They would also come perhaps from different ends of India, from the north and the south, or from different states, different languages, different castes. And so they would say, we don't use our own cultures, we use gospel cultures. They were using that as a resource to navigate Those differences in culture. There's a diversity in the church in India that is very uncharacteristic of Christianity in India. Other Christian churches will remain caste-bound, so people will go to a church where it's their own caste, their own people, their own group from their home back in the village that they came from. In the LDS church, they'll come from Different parts of India, different places in the world, different castes. So this is really a time that members are really looking at culture critically and trying to decide. And, and the term gospel culture seems to be somewhat of a resource for them.
0: I'm thinking along the lines for gospel culture. When I go to church, go to sacrament meeting, I shake hands of people I pass oh, by. Oh, right. Is that an Indian tradition? Okay. Or that they've carried over, or is that something they've adopted because it's Mormon culture?
1: This is Mormon culture. This is, this is Wasatch Front culture. This is Western culture. It has been adapted. There is definitely handshaking and hugging. But I had several people who were open enough to say that it's difficult for them There were those who came from outside the church who were looking in investigators or non-members who were married to LDS people who would tell me they were really bothered by that. When you put your hands together and say namaste, it's "I, I salute the God within you. And so there's a respect to not approach and shake hands or hug. That's a very Western, very comfortable thing that people who have been in the church for a while will probably feel more comfortable doing but those who haven't it'll be definitely a western perhaps imposition
0: you mentioned that women
1: especially
0: don't really like the term patriarchy yes in india yes and i thought to myself i'm not so sure we love it in the united states <laughs> either <laughs> do you want to yeah. talk about yeah. that
1: well definitely the rhetoric Surrounding patriarchy has lessened. If you do a search on the use of the term patriarchy in over the pulpit in conference, it has lessened tremendously, and I think it has to do with with countries like India who are attuned to issues of patriarchy, oppressive patriarchy that is really problematic. And many of the women would speak in terms of we come from a patriarchal culture or we're trying to work against patriarchy. I never heard it used in terms of the church is a patriarchy or it was always the church has priesthood and priesthood is the good way of leadership. So there was a differentiation between patriarchy and priesthood.
0: What are you hearing from Indian women as they're navigating their relationship with the LDS
1: Church? There's definitely a sense that membership in the LDS Church is a liberation. It is a, a source of ennobling and empowerment for women to be leaders, to speak in the church, to be missionaries, right, and to hold office. There's also a sense that women are escaping some of the evils of their patriarchal society as their husbands take on temple covenants and they see women as being important to their own salvation. There's definitely a change in even the economic state of women and there's also a, a willingness to even just speak to outsiders and to use agency in a way that's more powerful. One of my favorite stories was a woman who told me that she became a District Relief Society president, and the district president told her, all you have to do is give a talk in district conference, and that's pretty much your job description. And She said, I knew there was more to the job than that, so I read the handbook. and Sure enough, there was more. And so, you know, she went above his head to the mission president and said, listen, we need to help and educate this man who comes from a patriarchal culture, and that I have some other duties to do, you know. So, it's interesting. I see women using the handbook, and using training, and using counsel as a source of empowerment to help men to switch over from this patriarchy to what they see is taught in the church as as the ideal.
0: We talked about one way that LDS teachings are counter to Indian culture, the way that Indian women define patriarchy, the church is actually Mm anti-patriarchy. It's more egalitarian. Absolutely. And what other ways are LDS teachings counter to
1: Indian culture? One interesting, unexpected way is with caste. Some of the simple structures of the church push against caste. Just the concept of a geographic division for churches crosses a different boundaries of caste. Within the church, the sacrament is passed to people, and caste is broken in that way. But one of the most important ways is in just cleaning the church, having members that clean the church. There was one gentleman who, he came from a higher caste, and he was determined that whenever it was his turn to clean the church, he would clean the toilets, which was his way of saying that caste is not an issue for me. I'm a member of the church first and my caste has nothing to do with this. So he was definitely pushing against those boundaries, which is very Gandhian. Gandhi actually would do the same thing. Would say that, you know, we need to, to really clean and push against caste. The job of cleaning the toilets was
0: usually for the untouchables. Oh, oh exactly. You mentioned that even the strength for you pamphlet is a stretch for Indian culture. I was discussing this with my husband. It's really interesting how cultural things are that you think, oh, this is really moderate, the minimum, and they're saying, oh, this is very liberal.
1: We swim in culture, right? It's all around us. We don't notice that the Strength of Youth pamphlet is infused with Western culture, and dating is one of those things. Granted, the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet does give the caveat, in cultures where dating is appropriate, dating should start at 16. Well, for Indians, you don't date. Dating is taboo. Those who do allow for dating see this as an important element in agency, in exercising that agency to choose a partner. But arranged marriage is still alive and well, even in among the church members. And
0: even 16 is a right. really no, young exactly. age. No,
1: exactly. They will say, there are were, there were a lot of members that will say, we say 18, or we say 20, or older, or when you finish school, then you can date, or when you finished your mission. So dating becomes different, right? It's going to mutual activities is considered dating because you're actually associating with members of the opposite sex which doesn't usually happen. And much of the reason is caste endogamy. It's to prevent these relationships from starting that would go against an arranged marriage.
0: What are some of the costs of membership in India?
1: It's huge, I think, for a member of the church that comes from a Hindu background to join the church and to leave so much of their culture behind Finding the line of where religion ends and culture begins, or vice versa, is virtually impossible, and particularly so in India. What is a Hindu practice, or what is just an Indian practice, right? The bindi. Do I have arranged marriage? When I get married, do I have the haldi ceremony? These kinds of practices that are really important in keeping a family together in in Indian culture, sometimes are conflated with religion, and so they're questioned when you become a Latter-day Saint. Probably one of the, the major costs is when you turn against a caste endogamy, I think, too, as well, I've seen that a lot. When there are women who want to make a choice for a certain marriage partner, and they have chosen to run away in order to be married. The cost of that continues for years and years. I know one woman who says that she's still not accepted within her own village because she joined the church, because she ran away and became a Christian and married a Christian and became LDS. You mentioned even the term conversion has so much negative baggage that yes. goes with it. Yes, yeah. And that's because of the laws that are in place against conversion. Talking about we're going to convert someone or someone has converted is really problematic because it's charged with this idea that you have been persuaded, you have been forced. There has been an enticement that goes past ethical boundaries to become a Christian. And many problems have arisen through proselytization being interpreted as a force or a People have been paid or enticed to become a Latter-day Saint or a Christian. The use of that term is problematic. Even the use of proselytization is problematic in Christianity, in the broader Christian tradition. Really, when we talk about going on a proselyting mission, we're, first of all, using not even a word (laughs) that's still used in Christianity today, but, but we're talking about a pejorative, really, the idea that you're forcing someone. You're going out to force people to become a Mormon instead of teaching the gospel or evangelizing.
0: The church in India has grown very slowly. How has that slow growth been a
1: blessing? Well, in my perspective, I see it as a blessing because mission has come from within India, There's a really strong tradition of missionary work in India, and Latter-day Saints have relied on their own people to convert, which has then allowed for this enculturation, this indigenization, what I see as a hybridization in Hyderabad, right? So that there's a hybrid identity, that they're Mormon and Indian, or Indian and Mormon, both, because they have not been taught necessarily by all Western missionaries who have come over and and also taught culture along with that. It's been very much from within in many ways. The activity rates in India are higher. They're some of the highest in Asia. And I think it's reflective of that slower growth. The growth in India has paralleled the slower growth in missionary work in general in the church. When we see this approach as growing in centers of strength versus taking the gospel, starting branches all over the place, the church has tended to go to this practice of centers of strength, which you see in India, where the attempt is to grow very strong within these cities. And then when you have a group of members who are able to cross that bridge between English and the Indian languages, then the gospel will go to villages and to other areas.
0: You introduced the counterintuitive notion that correlation actually helps with hybridization.
1: How does that work? (laughs) Well, I appreciate what Matt Bowman says about correlation, that in order for the church to be global— we needed correlation, that this was part of making this tent able to be dismantled and reassembled in these different areas. It had to be simplified, right? Correlation today is really resistant of cultural identifiers within, if you see the, the Come Follow Me curriculum or whatnot. We tend to, to really harp on correlation, right? But it really does allow for the church to globalize in hopefully a way that Christ is at the center of these things and that culture can be added on the ground and navigated on the ground. This indigenization and this hybridization, I feel, comes from the local. It's not from the center of the church. The center of the church is not going to determine what this gospel culture should look like. It really should be navigated on the ground. Correlation, I think, is trying to do that by simplifying things and allowing the message to be taken broadly and then interpreted on a level. Um, I saw, for instance, a Relief Society lesson given in three different contexts, one in Hyderabad, one in Hong Kong as I was traveling to Hyderabad, and then one in Draper, and they were all the pride lesson. It was Ezra Taft Benson year. And it was so fascinating to see the different interpretations, the different ways that that was taught, where culture was brought in and, and inflected that message.
0: Oh, that is fascinating and interesting. You couldn't have planned that if you tried no, to. No, no. uh
1: uh-uh. Yeah, it's great.
0: What can we learn from India about the indigenization of the Mormon church and other cultures?
1: I think it's just a great case study because this is the frontier, right? This is approaching the non-Christian nation. Approaching religious pluralism is kind of the next frontier. And I think that we can look at stakes as LDS indigenization and sites for enculturation. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen from the center. We keep calling for that. But it's going to happen when people, local, say, this is how, with my agency, I'm going to decide this is what stays from my culture, and this is what is jettisoned. And there is space for that. There is space for those areas of enculturation. What remains to be seen is whether we will look to these forms of enculturation as part of The gospel, and will appreciate and learn from them. Even that will look to the margins, so to speak, as new centers and important areas where we can learn something from the Indian Latter Day Saint, right? And I think we've seen that, for instance, with Dieter Uchtdorf, the way he has influenced the Church and the way his own really German Lutheran background is inflected his Mormonism. I think we're looking for reciprocal influence in the future, one of my favorite quotes on these hybrid identities that I that I do think will come, I think we'll see more and more hybridity in as a good thing, not as a ooh, this is evil syncretization and, and this is not gospel culture. this is hopefully a less of a tendency for Western members to want to impose their own culture on those in other areas but will allow for this hybridization, right, in their mission work or in their their ministry. One of my favorite quotes about hybrid cultural identities, that they're not simply a choice of the home culture, the host culture, both or neither. But this hybridization process is a creative expression of something that's new. It's larger than the sum of its parts, right? This becomes something bigger and something better. As we look for these hybridities, as we look for what we can learn, we see Christ better. We see this is another manifestation of the way Christ would live the gospel in this context. I think this case study of of India gives me hope for the future.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your scholarship. It's been a fascinating Thank discussion. Thank you for letting
1: me go on and on about India, my favorite topic. What's in the future for your India research? I'm in the process of turning the dissertation into a book right now with a university press. And then I also want to do a book that's specifically for Latter-day Saints themselves, that doesn't use a lot of jargon and, and words that you need a dictionary for. So something that will allow perhaps Latter-day Saints in India to appreciate this. Looking forward to the temple that will be built in Bangalore.
0: I bet you'll want to go to that dedication. Oh,
1: you betcha. I will be there. (laughs) Thank
0: you, Tonalyn. Thank you.
1: Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the
0: podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.